Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to Mount View Fellowship this morning. And of course, a special welcome to our moms. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I think it is great that we take time to thank our moms. Um, we probably don't do that enough. And so I hope today that you get the opportunity to, uh, to thank your mom, or if you're not with your mom, at least thank God for her. Um, I'm going to be upfront. This morning, the message is not a Mother's Day message. We are in the fifth week of a series on the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Marked. And so we're in that fifth chapter, and the fifth chapter is not necessarily a Mom's Day kind of message, okay? But we're going to move forward anyways. Mark is one of my favorites. It's actually my favorite book of the Bible. And the Gospel of Mark is, in my opinion, the best place to start to read the Bible. Because right away, it's all about Jesus. It's how we get to know who he is, how he interacted with people, why he came, what he did, what he accomplished, and how we're supposed to model our lives after following him. Now, the nature of church is it's actually not a gathering of people around a religious practice or a gathering of people around a certain philosophy of life or even a way to worship. Yes, all of those things are part of church, but a Christian church, first and foremost, is a gathering of people around Jesus. That's why we're here. And I think the Gospel of Mark is just a great way for us to see who Jesus really is. Now, as I start in this morning, there's something I want to point out. Bottom of our slides, we have this number. If you have spiritual questions, go ahead and text that number with a question, okay? One of the pastors will either get back in touch with you or even at the end of the service, we'll get up and answer a few of those questions if we can, okay? In the ancient world, uh, when there was a new king or a new Caesar, oftentimes they would put together a rock and they would inscribe something special on the rock. This is actually Caesar Augustus's, it's called an eugelion. Eugelion is just Greek for good news, okay? And Caesar's eugelion says this. It says, Providence has set everything in perfect order by giving us Caesar, whom she filled with virtue that might benefit the all of mankind, sending him as a savior so that he might end all wars and arrange all things, surpassing all those before and all future benefactors, since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the Eugelian for all the world. Okay? That's how it starts out. And again, Eugelian just means good news. Sometimes we use the word gospel. Let's listen to the gospel of Mark and how it starts in verses 1-1. The beginning of the gospel, the angelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You catch it? He's basically saying some of the same exact words that the angelion of Caesar said. You see, the gospel of Mark is actually about rebellion. 
It's a declaration that Caesar is not the savior of the world, that Christ is. It's a declaration that Caesar cannot bring lasting peace, only Jesus can. It's a declaration that Caesar is not the greatest of all time. Jesus created all, he rules all, and he will be all forever. You see, the book of, of the Gospel of Mark is actually subversive. It was not politically correct at the time. You see, it is all about change, about culture change, about life transformation. It's not the kind of good news that you go, hey, guys, I got some good news you might want to hear. It's more like, people, listen, this is the good news that you've been waiting your entire life to hear. This is real world rocking, paradigm changing, life transformation. This is the good news. There is a real king that has real power and he cares for you. This morning, let's turn to chapter five in Mark. That's where we're gonna be mostly. And it's no surprise, usually when I get up here, I have a lot more I want to say that we just don't have the time to cover. If it was up to me, this would actually be probably four different sermons this morning. So I apologize. I'm going to be cramming and moving quick through some things. But I think it's actually really good for us to be doing Mark this way. You see, Mark is almost, when he tells the story, it's almost breathless. He's moving so quickly. And so us going through quick, I think it works well. Now, just before Mark chapter 5 is Mark chapter 4. And just before Mark chapter 4 is... Mark chapter 3. You guys are quick learners. Awesome. This is going to work out. You see, the gospel of Mark builds upon itself. It was originally written without chapter and verse breaks. Those were actually added about 1,500 years later by a French printing press publisher, so just to make this printing easier. And so I think it's best to read the entire book of Mark in order all at once. And I'm going to recommend you do that this week. It takes the average adult about 90 minutes to do that. So instead of binging on some shows or watching a movie, sit down, read Mark. And if you sit and you read it in one sitting, you are going to see some things that you won't see reading it a little bits at a time. It's also how the original church would have done it. See, the original church, when Christianity was kind of going, they would get together on a Sunday, they would read a scroll or a book out loud in its entirety. And then they'd spend the rest of the day talking about it, praying about it, and eating food together. This morning as we go through chapter 5, there's a few things I want you to watch for. Three themes. And these themes are in chapter 5, but they're also throughout the entire book of Mark. And the first one is just the question, who is the king? I've already kind of started that a little bit. And spoiler alert, it's not Caesar. Okay? The second theme to watch for is faith over fear. For John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, faith and fear are mutually exclusive. There is no command repeated more often in the Bible than do not fear. Why is this? Well, God knows us. He knows that we take our eyes off of him and look at the worries of the world often and forget that we can trust him with everything. So he encourages us all the time. So as we go through these stories today, I want you to watch how people react. Do they act out of fear or do they act out of faith? And then the third theme is something I'm calling the return to God's OG. Do you guys know the term OG? 
OG just means the original. It's like the true, authentic original. This is returning it to God's original plan. Okay? And by that, I mean the first three chapters of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. Okay? Whenever a Bible author writes a book, they, they sat down and they had a purpose for writing it. The stories that they go through, the order they put them in, are all for a purpose. And John Mark, his purpose is the beginning of the Eugelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so there's a return here. The king is coming back. It's back to God's original OG plan. Again, the first three pages of the Bible. At the very beginning, everything was perfect, right? Man was in perfect relationship with God. Heaven and earth were united. And then there was a fall. So Mark is going to overlay on these four stories we're going to go through this morning. He's going to overlay on top of four big issues that you'll see in Genesis 1 to 3. Now, as again, as we start, um, I don't think chapters in the, the different books of the Bible fall always at the best place. And so we're actually going to step back into chapter 4 for a few moments. Um, and it's just because I think in, originally these four stories, there's one in the end of chapter 4 and three in chapter 5, were meant to be together. Pastor Don spoke briefly on this first story, but I'm going to go through it a little bit. So let's actually turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Fear is dominating the story at the moment. They still don't know who Jesus is. The disciples have been following him and he's been doing some amazing things, but they haven't figured out he is the Son of God yet. Other translations will sometimes take this question and actually put it, don't you care that we're perishing? Well, that was the whole point of Jesus' mission. He knew we were perishing, that we were dying in our sin and we needed a Savior. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Sometimes when we read this story, we make it an allegory of our life, right? In the storms of our life, maybe something going on at work or in our family. But I want you to think back to Wednesday night this past week, right? High winds, rain, golf ball hail that's hitting and breaking windows, tornado sightings, an actual storm. And that's what Jesus quiets. Jesus conquers the physical world. Caesar, nor no one else, could ever do that. And the people reacted by being afraid. It's this key question, who is this man? The disciples still don't know. If they knew that he was God's true son, then they would have gone, of course he has power here. 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, then you know that, like Colossians 1.16, that says everything was created through Jesus and for him. So God's OG, of course, he can control the physical world, the weather, the waves. Now let's go into chapter 5. So they arrived at the other side of the lake after the storm, in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Why was this man in the cemetery? The people were afraid. They didn't want to be around him. He was the living dead, now living among the dead. Moms put it in this perspective. You have a three-year-old. For some reason, the three-year-old just drank four shots of espresso. They don't have a nap. It's in the afternoon, and you're in the grocery store. And you get to inform them that you're not going to buy the bag of Oreos they just pulled off the shelf. Good luck, right? Um, Last week, Pastor Don uh, was speaking on the four soils, and he had four pots out in the lobby to kind of illustrate that. It was a great sermon illustration. I thought we should have an illustration as well, so I had proposed that Pastor Ryan be out there shackled and naked and acting crazy. (laughs) But... It's Mother's Day, and we thought that wasn't the image we should portray, right? So, sorry about that. The story continues. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. He is not bowing out of worship. He's bowing after seeing Jesus' authority. James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe in Jesus, and they tremble in fear. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Just before that, during the storm, the disciples asked, Who is this man? They were trying to figure it out. But even the demon knew he was Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Jesus had already asked the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Jesus asks his name. Um, In the Bible, often somebody's name reveals their character, things about them. In this case, it is a legion of demons. There is a lot of them. Now, if we had time this morning right now, I would go through answering the question, are demons real today? Here's the quick answer. Yes, they are. But it looks different sometimes than what we just read. In some places of the world, demons do act this way. They possess people and do crazy things. It's all about taking our eyes off of Christ and being afraid. In those places in the world, people are concerned about power. Who has power? The demons or Jesus? So the demons try to act like they're powerful. In our culture today, we are mostly spiritually asleep. And so the demons are much more subtle because if they acted this way, we might wake up and they'd rather work to keep us asleep. So it might look different. 
Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. What kind of area is this? Well, this is along the Sea of Galilee. So you get the sea and you have these sharp hills. But also, this is a Gentile area. The pigs give us a clue. The other side of the lake was Jewish. That's where most of Mark so far has been. But now he's in a Gentile area, very different. Again, this morning, we could spend some time and walk through, you know, why did the demons ask to go to the pigs? Why did Jesus say it was okay? Why did they commit suicide? I think the... The thing is, we we have a class here called Expedition, and I'll be teaching another one of those in the fall, and we walk through the Gospel of Mark working through all of those kind of questions. But for this morning, I want you to just focus on the number of pigs, 2,000, and how it relates to the number of demons, a legion. Perhaps 2,000 demons were possessing this man, and he was in a world of hurt. The herdsmen of the pigs fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, maybe they were afraid that something was happening with the Jews, that, you know, this guy shows up, this Jewish guy with people around him, and all of a sudden this weird thing happens. I think they were more afraid of the change in status quo. While they were afraid of the demon-possessed man, now he's sitting there perfectly sane. How do you explain that? That's why they were afraid. Now, remember for a moment that Mark is totally connected, right? And so we're going to jump back to chapter 3 for just a moment. For us, chapter 3 was two weeks ago. For somebody who is reading through it and listening to it, it's only about three minutes ago, so it's on their head. In chapter 3, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus that he is healing people and doing things because he's actually demon-possessed. And Jesus replies back and said, If Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Remember, they kept trying to tie up the demon-possessed man, but they couldn't? Jesus is right now proving that he is the stronger one. He is stronger than the strong man. He has real power. And that's scary. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home. Go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of the region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told him. In the Gospel of of Mark, when you read that word amazed in English, I want you to think not like amazed, like, oh, wow, that's cool. I want you to think of more like terrified, overwhelmed, afraid. 
You see right here, Jesus conquered the spiritual world. Caesar and no one else ever before had been able to do that, and the people were afraid. And unfortunately for most of them, their fear cost them because it kept them from learning about Jesus. It kept them from faith. But Jesus didn't leave them without hope. He left behind the first Christian missionary. And his qualification was he was demon-possessed and then restored. Isn't that amazing? That was the first Christian missionary, and he knew who Jesus was because he had experienced him. If we think back to God's original plan, the OG, in chapter 3, what happens is everything is perfect, right? And then the serpent comes. He deceives Adam and Eve, and they choose on their own to rebel, to seize what wasn't theirs. That causes what we say is the fall, spiritual warfare, slavery to sin and death for all the rest of us. The first man failed. But along comes this guy named Jesus. Scripture calls him the second Adam or the new Adam. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he won instead of losing and failing. God's OG was for us to be in perfect relationship with him. And if you have an encounter with Jesus, you are changed. Just like the demon-possessed man, your nature, your outlook, your level of peace changes, and you want to be with Jesus even more. And that's how you know if you're really following Jesus or not. Do you want to be with him more? Then we go to a new story. Jesus got back into the boat and again went back to the other side of the lake, back to the Jewish side, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so he can live. He comes and also falls at Jesus' feet. There's a pattern here. This time, maybe not out of worship either, but just being at the end of his rope. Earlier, the religious leaders were all about getting ready to kill Jesus. And so Jairus is taking a risk here. He's kind of crossing party boundaries, if you will. Publicly, he's asking Jesus for help. And what do you do when you're at the end of your rope, when you're out of options? you probably still come to God too. Now, before I go further in the story, I, I got to bring up something. It's called a Markin sandwich. That just means that occasionally in the Gospel of Mark, the author does something pretty cool. What he does is he starts a story, and before he concludes the story, in the middle, he inserts a second story, okay? We call it a sandwich like there's one piece of bread and then the meat and then the other piece of bread. The whole reason for doing this is the two sides point to the middle. We like bread, but the meat is better, right? In this case, the first slice of bread is Jairus asking Jesus to heal his daughter. We just read that. Then we're going to have some meat. There's a bleeding woman we're going to meet, and she's going to get healed. And then the other slice of bread where Jairus' daughter gets healed, okay? The point of these Markin sandwiches is, again, to point us to something in the middle, that if we understand in the middle, it helps us see other things in the pieces of bread. In this case, it's all about faith over fear, taking a risk to have the benefit of Jesus in our life. 
Let's get to the meat. Jesus went with him, Jairus, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd who has suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten worse, no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She needed help, and she couldn't get it. But she had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to himself, I can just touch his robe and I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. She reaches out, she touches his robe and a miracle happens. She reaches out in faith. Now the beginning of the story, the bread, Jarius, well, he's a respected guy. He's risking a little bit here, um, crossing party boundaries but she's risking a lot more. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So she turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples to him said, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched your robe? It's like being in a rugby scrum and asking who touched me. But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. She falls out of worship. She took an amazing risk. You see, in that time and day in a Jewish era, she would have been considered unclean, defiled. Jewish law out of the book of Leviticus said a woman in her monthly cycle was unclean and needed to stay away. But anyone who had bodily discharge and things continually, not only were they unclean and defiled, but they were to be cast out from the community. She could have been stoned to death just by showing up. And by being in the crowd and touching others, she was defiling them as well. And she took the risk and she touched Jesus, making him ceremonially unclean. That's why she's trembling here. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She acted correctly. She acted out of faith and didn't let her fear control her. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. This is a completely different answer than she would have expected and what the crowds would have expected. You see, Jesus came not to be with the righteous, but to be with the unclean, the weak, the defiled, the scum, the sinners, to be with us. Jesus just conquered disease. The doctors and Caesar could never have done that. And Jesus also just conquered her shame. By having her admit publicly her issue and now that she's healed, Jesus restored her back to the community. And the people were shocked. In God's original plan, after the fall occurred, there was a few curses that happened. One of them you'll find in Genesis 3.16. And it says there that women will be cursed to have much more painful childbirth. This particular woman, because of her condition, likely was not married and was likely barren. 
So she carried all sorts of physical and spiritual and social and emotional pain because she was separated from everything. God's original plan was for us to be in relationship with him and to multiply and to fill the earth. So what does Jesus do here? He undoes that curse and he restores her. Now to the second slice of bread. While Jesus was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead now. There's no use troubling the teacher. Uh, We just experienced this joy, this amazing miracle that just happened because Jesus waited and spent time with this woman. But that delay probably caused the death of the girl. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith, believe. The point of these stories is this whole part right here, believe, have faith, don't fear. Be like this woman who out of faith took this risk and this step. Don't be fearful. Jesus is encouraging Jairus to believe in him. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw how much commotion and weeping and wailing. Uh, If somebody died in that culture, um, you would hire professional mourners to come. And if you had a lot of wealth and prestige, you'd have a lot of mourners. So obviously, Jairus had some prestige and some wealth because there's much commotion and weeping and wailing. Jesus went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. Why would they laugh? They didn't know who he was. Just some guy showing up, what can he do? She's dead. But Jesus made them all leave And he took the girl's father and mother and the three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. Why did Jesus speak these Aramaic words to her? Well, he wasn't doing hocus pocus or a magic spell. He has real authority and power. And he spoke to her in her language as if she was just sleeping. And then amazing thing too, he holds her hand. Another one of those Levitical laws, if there was a dead body, if you touch the dead body, you are unclean and defiled. No way would a rabbi or a teacher or a leader would touch a dead body because they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. But Jesus wasn't concerned about that, was he? So he holds her hand, he speaks these words to her. And the girl who was 12 years old, Interesting, 12 years old, just like the lady had the disease for 12 years. Immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. They told her, told them to care for her. Have you ever seen a dead person come back to life? Maybe through CPR or the use of an AED or maybe some... I don't know, advanced medical procedure that's done in the nick of time. Or maybe you've been blessed and you've actually seen God do something supernatural and raise somebody. 
But the point is that this is not our normal experience, is it? And so how did the people respond? They were overwhelmed and amazed, that word again. Maybe afraid. Who is this man? Jesus just conquered death. Caesar nor no one else ever could, and the people are amazed. Another part of the fall that we find in Genesis 3.19 is Jesus spoke to Adam and said, You will return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Death is part of the rebellion, part of the fall, part of sin. But Jesus can reverse it. In this case, he reverses it in the moment. But he can reverse it eternally. God's OG, again, was for us to live eternally in relationship with him. Death does not hold us. It might for a moment, but Jesus wins. In these four quick stories this morning, Jesus conquered the physical world, the spiritual world, disease, and death. Things all from what happened in the fall. In these four stories, because Jesus is the actual victor, his actual power, he's actually the king, Jesus restored peace in the physical world, peace in the spiritual world, peace in our bodies, and peace in our outcome. Yes, in these stories, these are short-term reversals that he did. But they're incredible foreshadowing of what he did on the cross for us and the final victory that will come when he returns. Which brings us back to Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why is it the beginning? Is it just because it's the beginning of the book? No, it's the beginning because right here, things are put in motion that continue even through today and will continue until Jesus returns. We get to be part of the story. We get to be part of God and Jesus restoring us, conquering things in our lives that we can't do on our own. And we get to be his witnesses to other people saying, he is real, he is victorious. We get to be part of the euangelon, the gospel, the good news. Jesus came to be our king to show us victory of faith over fear and to let us know that we can have a relationship now and forever with God through Christ as he redeems, he heals, he forgives, and he transforms us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning. I want to thank you that we get to gather around your son. You sent him because we need him. On our own, we are lost. We are slaves to sin. We are shackled and bound. And we spend our lives afraid afraid of death, afraid of our end. But you sent your son to rescue us, to restore us. Jesus, thank you for leaving the splendor of heaven.
for loving us so much that you were willing to come down to be with us unclean, defiled people, knowing that as you walked among us, you would become unclean as well, unclean to the point of carrying all of our sins upon your shoulders at the cross. How can we thank you for this? How can we thank you for what you have willingly done for us by dying on the cross? I don't think we ever can. Lord, I pray that you help us to walk closer with you in better relationship. For us to be willing like that bleeding woman to just come near you, knowing that you will heal us that you can restore us of the shame that we carry of our rebellion and our sin. Jesus, I thank you that you are the real king. That we don't have to, you know, think of fear as fear itself. That we can have faith in you. Jesus, thank you for loving us first. Long before we knew who you were, long before we were lovable. In your name, Jesus, amen.